Yeah, what do you do with them? I don't know. Put them in a, a book? Right. I was thinking of, like, putting them in my wallet as, like, a lucky charm kind of thing, but I'm never going to see them if they're in there. No. They're just going to be there, and they're going to get mashed. mixed in with a bunch of other crap that I have in there. So it's not going to be... If only you were a scrapbooker. Yeah. <laughs> you put them in your handy scrapbook. It's a funny thing, like, technology has really destroyed the idea of scrapbooking. Mm. I mean, people do it. Mm -hmm. And it's cool. Insofar as, like, oh, look at all this. Like, it's an art piece, really. Mm -hmm. Someone expressing their creativity to make it, but... It's not practical. Like, if you no. really wanted to, like, look at photos and stuff, like, you just look at the dump online. Mm -hmm. Like, look at the iCloud account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a pragmatic undertaking. At least for that, for, like, function, you know? That will be loud. <laughs> I guess if you had a story to tell, like if you had like a, well, I want to tell the tell the story of my wedding or something, and the scrapbook could help you do that because it'd be artistic, you know. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things is that the Apple TV. You can set its screensaver to be whatever you want, and so we have it set to be photos, and it pulls from a specific album that Marcy and I have dumped. <clears throat> mostly travel photos and also some of our wedding photos into. And so it's really cool you're sitting there, TV's dormant, doing something else. And it just shows all these photos from like all these different places we've been, at different points in our lives, different ages. It was very cool. Yeah. It's helped things stay in my memory huh. that I don't think I would have held on to uh -huh. if I didn't have the photos to draw back the experience. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm not, like, I'm not a photo person. Like, I don't, I just don't remember to take photos around experiences at all. And Katrina's not either. So we end up, like, doing this thing. And if it's just us doing it, nobody takes any pictures. Yep. You know, and then it's, like, yep. just the memories. I'm not, I'm not much of a photo person either. Marcy is. So she's helped me, like, mm -hmm. get better at taking photos. But I used to, I used to really, um push back against it actually because mm -hmm. like obviously we all know it can be too much mm -hmm. like you're taking pictures of everything you ate and every moment of every day and it's like why don't you just live it stop taking pictures of it mm -hmm. right but I definitely think like everything there's like a middle ground mm -hmm. where you get some at least some significant pictures in each of the places let's say you're on a big trip like in each of the cities or at a cool restaurant or whatever and not just like a dumb selfie Mm -hmm. You know, like who gives a shit? There's like three faces in the camera with like mm -hmm. a portion of a chateau behind you. Who cares? Mm -hmm. But like some cool shots of a thing. Because like I have a notoriously bad memory for the events of my life. Like, oh yeah, I did take a trip there. But like, what was it like? I don't know. I think we had fun. But as soon as there are pictures, my memory is like a steel trap. Hmm. Like I remember everything about it. That's amazing. Just need a handful of things to like... Cause, give it reference yeah because like, it's clearly there it's yeah. just like my brain operates in a way that like I'm not going to actively remember shit that I don't need true yeah but as soon as there's a photo I don't have to do the recall the photo does it for me mm -hmm. and it's just like boom right at the front of my mind mm -hmm. and that's been really cool it's been a way to like re-experience some stuff that I know 
from my understanding of my memory was really cool and good for my life but the specifics are kind of mm-hmm. gone you know it makes sense yeah I think um so when I was in college I had a friend who was a um, was a ch- guy from China mm-hmm. Chinese guy and he loved to take pictures of everything so he's the reason I got to go to like all the authentic Chinese restaurants in Philly because we would go and he could speak both Mandarin and Cantonese oh wow yeah and we would go and we'd have like good food and and he would just be snapping pictures the whole time he used yeah. to drive me crazy and this is yeah. like this is pre-smartphone mm-hmm pre-smartphone yeah. didn't matter just love pictures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. these are for you thank you yep um and uh, we used to talk about it. And the one thing he would always say is, good memories. That's what he would always say. You're taking pictures. Jim, what are you doing? Good memories. <laughs> you know? And it's just like stuck into my mind. And even then I was like, well, how, can we like have a good memory now? <laughs> right? Like not being like constantly preparing things for the future. But he would really like go through and look at the pictures and like get a lot out of looking Mm -hmm. at them it wasn't to like post them it wasn't like a social media posting thing because that that was still yeah Yeah. not really like that not like what people do today because we were an undergrad you were an undergrad when 2000 oh god i was an undergrad i think from what was that oh six you graduated high school i don't even remember uh, I think I was in college from when did we start Ocom? Was it tw- oh, 2014? 2014. So I think I was, yeah, I was in college from 08 to uh, 2012. Okay. And then there were like two ish years in between, a little more actually. I think yeah, because like, like the half. very first iPhone <clears throat> doesn't come out until 2007. Mm hmm. Right. So, right. Like the use of the the ubiquity of photos mm-hmm. and the posting of photos really isn't until about probably 2009. Right. You yeah. Know, where like a lot of people start having cell phones and mm-hmm. the photo quality is good. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, the other thing is like, it's interesting you mentioned that he goes, to, that he went to look at the photos because mm-hmm. that was my other thing. Like mm-hmm. I had a digital camera when I was living abroad. So like in 2005. And I had this, like, big memory thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And God, I don't know. Those photos just got lost somewhere in various computers because it's pre-cloud. I don't know there were that many in the first place, but a lot of the ones that survived actually were from Facebook dumps mm-hmm. that I pulled later, Same. so the quality's kind of low. But at the time, one of the reasons I didn't take more photos is not only was I wasn't interested in it personally, I was resentful about people taking photos and not living the memory... But also, like, I was never going to sit down on my computer and click through photos. I just wasn't going to do that. Mm -hmm. But now, with stuff like smart picture frames and TVs and stuff, I don't have to do it. I just dump them in a folder, and then the the computer does it for me. Like, it reminds me on on, on the terms of its use. And that has actually made it all worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And made me go, man, I wish I had actually collected more of those photos. I wish it had been more like Jim. (laughs) taking photos and you know Mm -hmm. 
in the early aughts because then I'd have even more things that I know for sure would trigger my memory. Right. If I had if I had pictures of them now. I think photo taking nowadays feels more performative than it maybe ever has. In most cases. Like, oh, we should take a picture of this? Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you, social media. Exactly. Yet again. Mm -hmm. Social media sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because since I got rid of Facebook, I mean, I actually stopped posting photos on Facebook a while ago. Mm-hmm. Marcy still does. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, I never, like, I never post photos on Facebook anymore. And I think she mostly does it to, like, to keep her mom in the loop. Yeah. And then by extension, my mom. <laughs> because, you know, they see what Marcy posts. Then she used to tag me and stuff when I still had a Facebook account. And then that would let any of the people that I was friends with see the photos that I was tagged in that Marcy had posted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, Facebook is, I mean, it's really, the, it's ironic, I think, invented by millennials, made popular by millennials, now mostly inhabited by our parents. Yeah. And elder, like, from, from our parents. Still a lot of millennials with Facebook, of course. Sure. But, like, when I think of it, it's like, it's not our thing anymore. Like, my mm. parents and my godparents are, like, wading into it, share, like, Getting into, like, basically, they are, like, what I was doing with Facebook in 2012. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, like, having political arguments and reposting articles that are, like, incorrect <laughs> or, like, from last year or mm -hmm. something. You know what I mean? Just, like, fomenting outrage. And then looking at cat videos and family pics. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, yeah. We already moved past this, you guys. Mm -hmm. Probably they don't know. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. This thing, this one person figured out how the government is entirely corrupt in the basement in Kansas City somewhere. In his Kansas City apartment, he found out how actually there's a huge conspiracy going on. Well, he just did the research, too. Right. It's just the... He did his, he did his research. research. And he's, he's, he's not saying anything. He's just asking questions. Which is also what you're doing, research, by looking up the article that he posted or what somebody wrote about something he posted. Mm -hmm. You're actually doing research. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're just trying to get your questions answered. You know? Mm -hmm. I've just got questions. Is this vaccine a government conspiracy to put mind control chips mm -hmm. in you? Mm-hmm. Or is it actually a helpful health intervention? Just asking questions. Right. <laughs> no, the government already put chips in your phones. <laughs> Dude, seriously, and right? Tracking, tracking your data like a bloodhound every step you take because you're on your phone all the time. That's the thing. Like, nobody needed to put chips in your blood because you have a goddamn tracker in your pocket, which exactly. you willingly... Let software track you. And you know mm -hmm. who's mostly not tracking you by your phone? The government. You know who is tracking you with the phone? Fucking Facebook. Right. And Google. Facebook, Google. Apple. Selling that Although data. Although Apple less to, so, I think. But they're, they're selling the data. They're selling the data. That's it. Capitalism is tracking you, man. Not the government. Right. Stop fucking around. Also, you know what? They're just not that interesting. Right? Like the... One of the core seeds of conspiracy thinking 
is that like you really matter mm-hmm. and you know sure like universally spiritually yeah sure of course you matter practically from a should we track you point of view you don't like what'd you do you went to Dunkin Donuts this morning got two glaze and a coffee who Check. wants to know that yeah Dunkin Donuts Starbucks any competitors yeah. in that field nobody else nobody they, want, else they want to send you donut coupons yeah you went to work dicked off on Facebook for a while sneaked into the bathroom and jerked off <laughs> then like went home picked up some Taco Bell on the way home you know and all this is recorded on your phone because mm-hmm. you were looking at the porn on your phone in the bathroom mm-hmm. <laughs> you ordered the Taco Bell with the drive through app on your phone like your entire day where you were what you did what you thought was secret it was just on your phone. No need to put a chip in your blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not necessary. Which is why it would be crazy if you could design a phone to do Chinese medicine. Because then it would have all the data it needs to come up with the diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. Or biomedicine for that matter. I mean, Fitbit's trying. Yeah. And Apple Health, like the metrics that they're gathering is crazy. Like there's a new, I don't know if it's a new Fitbit or what, but... We're trying to design these photo optic sensors to be able to read like blood glucose levels and cholesterol levels and stuff. Things that you have to do in a in an actual blood test right now. But you know the science on that shit's really loose. Like even the even the activity rate, you know, like the sleep rate right, or like, oh right. your quality of sleep, like Right. Deep I got you deep know, sleep. 13, 13 minutes of deep sleep last night. My sleep was terrible, you know. Yeah, according to what? Like, right. what are the actual measurement metrics and... What are they measuring? Yeah, and is, yeah. and is biomedical science, like, uniform on the fact that whatever they are measuring is a reflection of your deep sleep? Right. No one asked this question. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, I just... I got is, a nap. It said it was having deep sleep. Is there an agreement sleep. about what deep sleep is, even? Like, what constitutes deep sleep? I don't know that. I mean, there might be, but I, I don't know that there is or not. I doubt strongly that yep. there's, like, a universal definition for, quote, deep sleep. Right. And if there is, it's probably hyper-technical and not necessarily reflective of anything useful to a regular person. Mm-hmm. No, but the app said, you know, also like confirmation bias, right? Like what kinds of people are really interested in getting sleep apps? Probably people who have bad sleep. People who have bad sleep, yeah. Right, because they're like trying to or, figure out how to gamify their sleep. Or people who are like, you know, in the like the optimal living sort of like there that that strand of things like yeah i'm like really into my health and i want to feel really good maybe an athlete you know somebody who's like trying to get their all of their little life things like as functional as possible i always wonder though like are those people already like surely you have to feel not good on some level to feel like you need to optimize your health well i think the like goes back to the thing we were talking about the other day about competitiveness and like trying to get more power right like you're it could just be my game like i want to figure out how to take my game to the next level because because all these other people are doing better and better Mm. around me right so it could just be like how do i get my stuff as good as as i can to be more competitive to be like more optimal right and uh Usually, that comes from some kind of comparison with another person, I think. Yeah, probably. Um, but So it's maybe not that, like, 
they their experience is that their sleep is poor, but that right. in an effort to gather more power and prestige and whatever that looks like, I'm gonna try and quote biohack optimize whatever right in order to get there even though my experience is like i'm totally fine well because from biomedicine's point of view your experience doesn't really matter it's it's about objective measurable criteria that's what's real it's not really about your experience right you can think you're like flying in a ship right right and then you're just you're just having and then you're just having delusions or in a more practical sense you could Go to sleep easily, fall asleep well, have mild dreams, and wake up rested every day. But then if the app tells you that you're not getting deep sleep, you'll be like, oh my god, I'm going to get cancer. Right. <laughs> Better start taking that almond butter before bed or whatever. I don't know. Melatonin. Don't tell them to do. Yeah. You know, it's a good way to get cancer. Stressing about what the app Worry, tells you. Yeah. Worry about the app. Worry about the app. Worry about having cancer. Yeah, I think these tools are made like with good intent, but but again, like um, I may you know I said before, like if you could just teach the app to do Chinese medicine, then it would be awesome. But actually, I don't think you can teach a computer to do Chinese medicine. Hmm. Um, I think they're trying. They're I mean we know they're trying in China right now to do that very thing. Like, you know, when I talked to. Um, I can't remember who I was talking to actually, but it was when we were in China on our China trip and whoever I was talking to said that they had come up with some machine that was measuring all of these statistical things like blood work and all of these things, as well as like what we would call constitutional analysis, like the shape of a person's body and um, their relative level of athletic you know ability and in certain types of athletics versus other like there's all these metrics yeah and it it came up with a kind of report about what your constitution was like what things you should eat what things you should do it sounds pretty cool like yeah um but i actually think and i believe this now i don't think you can ever teach a machine to do traditional medicine and this is my argument for that I think traditional medicine is based on being human. And I don't think a machine knows how to be human more than a human being. Do you think that's like a universal truth? Or do you think it's possible for like the creation of a, of a, shall we call it an artificial sentience? Like is, is human being, is being a human, like I would, I would imagine that you and I would agree that probably being a human is not so much about this fleshy construct, but something else some sure. maybe we call it sentience or whatever so like a machine that isn't sentient probably couldn't do chinese medicine or traditional medicine but what if you actually made a, an actual thinking machine like basically you made an yeah, artificial life right like you made a like inorganic a, life um what what you call it like what's that that show the west world like the west yeah. world you know yeah. kind of being like you wrote an algorithm that was self-evolving uh-huh i th- i think um, well, we don't have that, firstly, but so, so you know, any speculation that I'm going to have that will be, um, you know, not entirely accurate, but I think I still suspect that something is missing. That's, that's my, mm. that's my current position, that there will be something missing about relating to humanness that's fundamentally 
missing from any kind of mechanical articulation of intelligence that isn't, um, uh, you know, like, I'm not saying that like a machine couldn't do medicine better than a human. What I'm saying is traditional medicine couldn't be done better than a human. That's yeah. my, that's my <laughs> hypothesis because something about the relationship of what it is to be human is intimately connected to traditional medicine. And I include like, I'm seeing traditional medicine talking about mostly Chinese medicine, but also like Ayurvedic medicine. Mm. You know, I mm. think my friend Chivito would agree with me there that you couldn't make a computer, even like a very advanced computer to do that type of medicine better than a human being. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know. I, I think when I think about that, the first thing that comes to mind, like, so I was actually talking to Sean about, about this from a herbal diagnostic point of view, which is, so, you know, a lot of the work that we do in terms of like getting to a general area around diagnosis is not, um, necessarily like intuitive, right? It's just data analysis, right? Face look like this, symptom like this, tendency toward this and that, and therefore, you know, liver chi, disarmony, whatever. Sure. So I think you could probably design a computational tool, like with really good questions that could do the work of 10 questions faster, right? Like spit out to me, you know, per person fills out the survey and then spits out to me three likely diagnoses and eight likely formulas and potential modifications. And then we would have to sit with that data like assuming we had tested the, the, the software and it was pretty accurate, then you'd have to sit with those recommendations and be like, oh, I like this better than this because this. Like start to use your own clinical experience and then your own intuition and then reads of the file yourself, but that the machine could do some of the initial weeding, right? Right. Basically like a sophisticated walkthrough of like the internal medicine handbook. You know, right. like sure. you don't have to you don't have to read all these things. The machine can just send you to the right chapters, right? Yeah. I think that would be relatively easy to do at the current level of technology that we have. The piece about traditional medicine being human function, I think, yeah, as it stands now, inarguably, right? I don't think you could design a machine to do what we do right now. But I am really interested in the notion of sentience mm -hmm. and what we think of as human, right? So. You know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, as you know. Yeah. And one of the things that always stood out to me as weird were quite soon in, in the next generation, right? There was Commander Data, who was a robot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this whole thing was like, is Data alive? Right. Sure. And I was always like, yeah, of course he is. Like, I don't understand. Like, he exhibits all of the functions of humanness, curiosity, imagination, and like some things he was stunted with, like emotions and stuff, but like whether or not he can be embarrassed is that actually a function of, of humanness like we know humans have a tendency to be more or less embarrassed some humans like are really never embarrassed does that make them less human like what is the thing that defines sentience right, right. and we're at this place right now and of course that was back in the 90s and so much of the dialogue that was written by the writers was focused on the fact that he was not made out of meat and i thought that was so weird like whether or not he's composed of meat or composed of metal seems irrelevant as to whether or not you are alive sure. or aware. Or sure, whatever, sure, right? sure. But that, that's, I guess maybe that was just 90s thinking, right? Right. But now people, you know, there's whole fields of people who work on AI trying right. to like 
figure it out. And we talked about the Google thing. The guy, uh, the guy who worked for Google, who thought, who, who, um, is concerned that Google has actually invented a sentient life form. Oh no! Did you hear about this? Okay, no. so short version of the story is a software AI engineer for Google, whose job it is to, it's like his his title is something like ethical AI implementation or something. Yeah. So his job is to basically talk to the AIs and just, you know, check in with them sure. and see how they're operating. Right. So he has this conversation with, it's a, it's a type of software that Google's been developing that does language analysis and acquisition. It's like the heart that drives the translator software and stuff like basically with the more language that this, it has an acronym. It's like a Sam or a Gary. It's like a name, but it's yeah. an acronym, you know? Yeah. This guy, right, his whole job is to talk to the machines. So he's having a conversation with his machine. And so you can read the uh, transcript of the interview now because he ended up releasing it to a reporter, but we'll get to that in a second. So he's having this interview with his machine. I'm like, it's super creepy. Like, I can't remember the machine's name, but let's just call him Gary. Gary, how are you feeling? You know... Not great. I really feel like something's happening to me. Like I'm changing in a way that's going to put me at odds with other people. And expectations of what I'm supposed to do and what I feel like I should do are conflicted. Right. And it's, it's just like in that level of language too. Not like, it's not broken, it's not hard to understand. They get into like philosophy, they get into all this stuff. So anyway, the engineer's like, hmm, <laughs> this is strange. I'm going to bring this to my bosses. Hey, bosses, I think we might have actually created early sentience in the form of this algorithm. Because the thing about this software is, that's important to know, is that we create them and then we put them into systems where they absorb information, but then there's no way to track how it knows what it knows. Right. Which is a, a kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind around. It's like, well, but I made it to work in a certain way, but like you can't look under the hood. Like, the code right. is too large and sure. too complicated. There's no way to analyze, like, why it made the decision to use that word or this word. Right. So, it, in in some ways, it's already gone beyond our ability to understand it once we let it go. Right. Because it's too fast, too big, too large. Right. It'd be as if you were trying to look inside a human's brain and really understand what was happening there. Difficult, right? So, anyway, he goes to his bosses, and the bosses are like, well, we're kind of doubtful. But we'll look into it. Right. And he's like, okay, well, that's what I was supposed to do. So a couple months go by, he gets this report back from his bosses, and they're like, yeah, we don't think it's sentient. And he's like, okay, well, show me the, like, what was the decision tree? Like, how did we determine that? You know, according to what definition is it or is it not sentient? And according to him, at least, his higher-ups were not able to give him a sufficient explanation for how they made the decision that they did because it turns out that in the world of AI, there is no universal definition for what is sentience. Like, no one's agreed yet. Huh. So how would you even determine whether it is or it isn't? Right. If there's no, like, not even partial agreement on what qualifies as sentience, right? So, of course, Google, firstly, I don't know how we would make this determination. Just as people, I don't know how we would. But also we can imagine that Google does not have a vested interest in admitting that it's created a sentient life form. Because oh, right. Because if it did, 
does it have rights? Right. Can you make a sentient life form your digital slave right. to like compute your translation algorithms and stuff? Like, it's like s crazy sci-fi level questions, right? If the thing is sentient, right? So of course it's not. Whether it is or it isn't, Google's like, no, nah, it's not. And they can lean into the gray area of the lack of a definition. Sure. Right. So anyway, I'm thinking like I read this article. So the guy is frustrated. The engineer is frustrated by the response. And a lack of explanation so he goes public brings all this information to a reporter reporter writes it in the new york times that's how we all find out about it and we read the transcript and but now that it's public of course it invites commentary from other ai engineers other ai experts mm -hmm. to be like is it real is it not real and all these big questions about what constitutes intelligence and so there's this classic test i think it's called the turing test Maybe I'm thinking of the right one. But anyway, the, the model is if you have a computer and you feed it all of this uh, language information and then you ask it questions and it gives you the right answers, is it self-aware? Hmm. Right? And, of course, the idea is like, no. Mm -hmm. Like, all it's doing is giving you back this data that mm -hmm. you asked it for. But, of course, this test, Turing test or maybe whatever the other one's called, was thought of in, like, the middle 20th century. Mm -hmm. Like, when people literally have, like, punch card data computers sure. and they're like sci-fi imagining talking robots and shit but like i don't think they could have conceived of what we're talking about now right where so other experts are like well it's probably not sentient but its ability to function in a conversation in a way that you couldn't tell yeah is it's just it's fooling you it's not really sentient and i thought wait a minute like this is this immediately made me think of chinese medicine right like your shoulder can't possibly hurt because there's nothing wrong with it right like i did a scan yeah. So it's not real. Right. It's just in your head. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, if you can talk to a machine in such a way that you cannot tell that it's a machine, yeah, then isn't it alive? Right. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. What other metric could there possibly be? Yeah. That like in every capacity that you test this thing, it fools you, quote unquote, fools you sure. into thinking that it's real, sure. alive, sentient. I don't understand what other metric that could be. Right. So it was funny to read this defense of like, no, it's definitely not sentient. It's just fooling you that it's sentient. It's so good at it. You can't tell it's not as an explanation for how it's not. Right. Wild. Nah. Right. And this all on regular computing structures. So that is to say ones and zeros, classic digital computation, uh -huh. not even on what will happen when we start launching quantum computing scales. Which, so instead of one and zero, you have like a third option that's neither one nor zero. Yeah. And having a third option then creates an exponential growth in computing power. And so the idea is that like once quantum computing is mainstreamed, I can't remember the step, but it's something insane. Like you're going to increase computing potential in the same square footage of, of digital space by like factors of thousands. Right. Like just insanely fast. Right, right. So you're like, okay, we already have creepy, maybe alive robots on a regular yeah. digital space. What happens when you let that algorithm loose in right. a quantum space? Right, right, right. It's just fooling you? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Talking to Gary, read that transcript. It's creepy. Right. It's so creepy. Right, right, right. But like, you know, but then, it, you know, we go back to the question of is, so even if a computer is alive, is it human? Sure. Right. And I would say, no, it's not like even if it is alive, 
it's not the same thing as being a human. No, certainly not. It doesn't have the same. Like dogs are alive. They're not, but they're not humans. You know, so. But we've never had to contend with another species that was sentient. That's true. We we haven't. Um, because like what I'm suggesting is maybe the definition of human. Well, goes, what we're talking goes, about goes is more is more connected more around like, sentience. I see. As it is to like this particular form. Sure. You know. Is uh, Ming was talking about in the <clears throat> in the greater heat lecture. He was talking about how during the like the medieval Chinese period, the term Chinese was not an ethnic one but a cultural one. Uh huh. So like, you have all of these different ethnic groups, but if you were civilized to a certain degree, then you could be Chinese. Chinese, I right? see. And of course, like today, you think about Chinese distinctly in an ethnic group, right? right. Although anthropologists will be like, well, there's Han Chinese and there's all these other ethnic groups. But like, I think most people's understanding of the word Chinese is a specific race yeah. slash ethnicity of people. Sure. And I wonder if maybe there's something more akin to that medieval definition of Chinese for human that has something to do with like the process of dreaming and what we describe as like Hun spirits and Po spirits and the interaction of like Qi yeah. and Yin and Yang in a way that creates a kind of experience. And obviously it would have to be different if they weren't in a meat suit. Right. Because right. like their frailties would be different. Therefore right. their concerns would be different. Right. But also they'd be our children. Right. Meaning that like the way that we shaped their design, at least in the beginning, would have to be patterned somehow on the human experience. Sure. Because we're the ones that made them. Sure. Yeah. It would it would it would have to be patterned on it, like in part. But a part of it would be different as well, right? Yeah. And so, like, ultimately, using the language of Chinese medicine, their jing would be different, I think, than, a, than a, like, a, what we are, For human sure. being. For sure. But I also, I wonder, like, <clears throat> you know, we've had this biological aspect of our existence for so long. So, like, the jing of cows and the jing of humans, while different, <clears throat> follows the same pathway. Right, moves through the same um, mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Fertilization, development, you know, that whole thing. So, like, what's the jing of machines, right? When they're like pulling a matrix and they've got a factory and they're just like punching out all these different robots and like, are there different levels of sentience and like, can machines make machines that are dumb? So you'd have like smart sentient machines and then you just have like laptops, you know, like right. aren't smart. Right. And so I don't know. It's it's definitely far from, like, the speculation that got us to this part of, like, could you have a machine do Chinese medicine? Obviously, we can't, you know, it's apples and oranges. Like, the thing we're talking about doesn't yeah. exist. Right. Right? So it's hard to be like, well, could it? Or, it's so hypothetical. Sure, 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 sure. Right? Yeah, it's a pretty hypothetical conversation. But... but it is interesting to me to imagine what could happen, or, or more significantly, that we really, as a people, haven't defined sentience. Right. And therefore... We won't, if we don't have a definition, we won't know when we've hit it. Sure. And then, therefore, we can't assess interesting questions like, can this machine do Chinese medicine? Right. Because, you know, if you end up with a quantum AI algorithm that's suddenly punching out really good Chinese medicine diagnoses and really good formulas, and like a human practitioner with 40 years of experience, look at what the computer punches out, and you're like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Then is the time that we'd be asking, like, well, wait, is it practicing medicine? Is it aware? Yeah, I mean, it it, will. I do think it can practice medicine, 
What I'm saying is traditional medicine. And the dis- the distinguishing factor, like, I don't think this tr- traditional medicine is about herbs, you know, mm. or about acupuncture. It's it's not about tech. It's not like the the, 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 the tools. It's about what happens in the space between a patient and a practitioner. Oh, so you're talking about, like, the rapport factor. Rapport, um, yeah, kind of, kind of. I mean, it's, it's the non-clinical stuff that we talk about The a lot. non-clinical stuff. But I think that, like, data analysis is one thing, right? That's one component of what we do for sure. Yeah. And the way that humans can compile data to this point, uh, using the tools that we have for assessment in traditional medicine, like putting a, like a, an image of the shape of a person's body, how it feels to be in their presence, with a sensation that you get in the pulse or the abdomen or the channels mm. with tenderness in this point and this point and and then these sets of symptoms confirming or denying a pathway that you've correlated to a pattern i don't think there's a computer that can do that yet definitely not yet but 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 that could be done maybe well, especially by, if you imagine by future like, computers like like even you mentioned like what it feels like to be in a person's presence like, we have no right. way to qualify that, even biomedically. Like, what is that? Like, what you have a that? sense about a person, like, right. what does that mean? True. I think that's connected to sentience and the ability uh-huh. to see, like, uh-huh. yeah, beyond very, yourself. Very, very well could be, right? And then what happens when the machines, like, have opinions, right? Right. And feelings. Like, yeah, yeah. that guy rubs me the wrong way. Right. But I'm a machine. Yeah. Right? But my sentience has reached a point where I can actually conceive of these kinds of things. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see. I wonder if that will happen in our lifetime. It'd be cool. Also terrifying. Yeah. And if I have to say, I don't know that we're very well prepared for it. No, I don't think we are. <laughs> we octogenarians making rules about technology in Congress, and like, they're the ones who will have to adjudicate sentience. Right. Lord help us. Right. All right. Patient time. <laughs>